Grace and peace to you. I invite you to join me in our prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Holy and gracious and living God, thank you for these words of Scripture. Pour out your Spirit upon us that they may come alive in us and guide us to help make this world a place that more closely resembles your kingdom. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our scripture lesson for today comes from the sixth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, building upon what Amy preached last week. Paul has been making the argument that it is not our own works that make us right with God, but rather God's grace. We don't earn our salvation, but instead, he says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In today's passage, Paul carries that idea forward, discussing what happens to us in baptism, as well as what that means for the rest of our lives. I'll read from the New International Reader's Version, which differs from the Pew Bibles. Um, it is what you'll see on the screen if you're worshiping at home. But I think it helps us with some of Paul's run-on sentences, and it's a little more accessible. So listen now for what the Spirit is saying to the church. What should we say then? Should we keep on sinning so that God's grace can increase? Not at all. As far as sin is concerned, we are dead. So how can we keep on sinning? All of us were baptized into Christ Jesus. Don't you know that you were baptized into his death? Christ has been raised from the dead by the Father's glory, and like Christ, we also can live a new life. By being baptized, we have joined with him in a death like his. So we will certainly also be joined with him in a resurrection like his. We know that what we used to be was nailed to the cross with him. That happened so that our bodies, which were ruled by sin, would lose their power. So we are no longer slaves of sin. That's because those who have died have been set free from sin. We died with Christ. So we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ was raised from the dead and will never die again. Death doesn't control him anymore. When he died, he died once and for all time. He did this to break the power of sin. Now that he lives, he lives in the power of God. In the same way, consider yourselves to be dead as far as sin is concerned. Now you believe in Christ Jesus so consider yourselves to be alive as far as God is concerned. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Down below the surface of a quiet pond lived a little colony of waterbugs. They were a happy colony, living far away from the sun. For many months, they were very busy scuttling across the soft mud on the bottom of the pond, they noticed that every once in a while, one of their colony would climb up the stem of the lily frond, 
gradually moving out of sight, never to return. Whenever this happened, they were puzzled. Wasn't she happy here? Some would ask. Where do you suppose she went? Others wondered. No one had an answer. Finally, one of the water bugs, Norman, a leader in the colony, gathered them all together. I have an idea, he said. The next one of us who climbs up the lily stalk must promise to come back and tell us where they went and why. We promise, they said solemnly. One spring day, not long after, Norman found himself climbing up the lily stalk. Up, up, up he went. Before he knew what was happening, he had broken through the surface of the water and fallen onto the broad lily pad above. He fell asleep exhausted. When he woke up, he looked around in surprise. He couldn't believe what he saw. A startling change had come over his body. His movement revealed four silver wings and a long tail. Even as he struggled, he felt an impulse to move his wings. The warmth of the sun soon dried the moisture from his new body. He moved again, and suddenly he found himself up above the water. He had become a dragonfly. Swooping and diving in great curves, he flew through the air. He felt exhilarated in this new atmosphere. By and by, Norman landed on a lily pad to rest. He noticed he was right above his old friends, the water bugs. There they were, scurrying around, just as he had been doing some time before. Norman remembered his promise. The next one of us who climbs up the lily stalk must come back and tell us where they went and why. Without thinking, he darted down towards the water and bounced off. Now that he was a dragonfly, he discovered he could no longer return to the water. I can't go back, he said in dismay. I can't keep my promise. That part of my life is over. I guess I'll just have to wait until my friends become dragonflies. Then they'll understand where I went and why. And Norman flew off into his new world of sun and air. I've used this story by Doris Stickney countless times to help children and some adults begin to process the concepts of death and resurrection. The dragonfly has a new body, one that can no longer survive underwater. His new body requires a new ecosystem in which to flourish. It's so different from his old one that it's like a kind of death. Paul writes that baptism links us to Christ's death, that what we used to be was nailed to the cross with him. You might even say that our old bodies designed to swim in the waters of sin have died and have risen into bodies that soar through the air on wings of grace. As we often say at the baptismal font each week, the old life has gone a new life has begun. Baptism and what happens in baptism is such a complex concept that we need metaphors to try and understand it. There are several that the biblical writers use. They talk about being washed, being clothed, being rescued, being born. 
And like the story that Nicole shared with us this morning, it is all that and it is more. In today's passage from Romans, Paul draws on yet another image. By being baptized, we have been joined with Christ in a death like his. So we will certainly also be joined with him in a resurrection like his. When we are baptized, part of us dies. The part that dies is what Paul calls our body of sin. Sin, like baptism, is complicated, and it can be hard to wrap our minds around. The language of sin evokes shame in many people, even though it's a universal human condition. We all sin. We all have fallen short of God's glory. When we think about sin, when I think about sin, we tend to think about specific things we've done. I lied three times this week. Or things we've failed to do. I forgot to call my friend about how the job interview went. But when we confess our sin together in worship, what we're really doing is acknowledging the tragic brokenness of our human condition and the brokenness of the world around us. The fact that there are people living in poverty in our very community. The fact that the strawberries I bought this week or the iPhone in my pocket were delivered to me through unjust working practices. These are things I didn't necessarily have a say in, but I am connected to it. I'm bound up in a web of sin. Acknowledging our sin means recognizing that we are constantly, usually without meaning to, running away from God and from each other. Did you know that wolves can change the course of a river? Writer George Monbiot explains that one of the most exciting scientific discoveries of the past 50 years has been the discovery of what he calls trophic cascades. A trophic cascade is an ecological process that starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles down. The example he gives is what happened in Yellowstone National Park when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, everyone knows that wolves kill various species of animals, but what you might not know is that they actually give life to many others. The wolves had been absent for 70 years, and the number of deer had just built up and built up and built up in the park because there was nothing to hunt them. Despite efforts by humans to try and control the population, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there down to almost nothing. They just grazed it away. As soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer. But much more significantly, Monbiot explains, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding places where they could be easily trapped, and particularly the valleys and gorges. And in those places, the vegetation started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. 
Bare valley sides became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds shot up. The number of beavers started to increase because they like to eat those kind of trees. And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers provided habitats for otters and muskrats and duck and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes. And as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes and badgers. Ravens and bald eagles came to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left. Bears fed on it too, and their population began to grow because they also started to feed on the berries that were growing on the regenerating plants. But the most interesting thing Monbiot described was the way the wolves changed the behavior of the rivers, which began to meander less, which became more fixed in their courses. There was less erosion, the channels narrowed, more pools formed, more riffle sections, all of which were great wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves, and the reason was that those regenerating forests stabilized the riverbanks, so they collapsed less often. Similarly, by driving the deer out of some of the places, the vegetation growing back on the valley sides, there was less erosion because the vegetation stabilized it so well. So he concludes, the wolves, though small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of Yellowstone National Park, this vast area, but actually its physical geography. I find it fascinating that when you trace this trophic cascade back to its source at the top of the food chain, it really is death that transforms Yellowstone. The overabundance of deer and coyotes had such an impact on the ecosystem and landscape and what it took to alter that impact was the death of some of them. And what it takes to transform our hearts is the death of what Paul calls our body of sin, so that we can be freed to live in grace. To live in grace, writes Anne Jarvis, is to live in an ecosystem that is not controlled by sin. One of the questions I've wrestled with this week is, if I'm baptized, then why do I keep on sinning? Paul asks it in this passage. How can we keep on sinning, he asks. Well, thinking of baptism as the ongoing maintenance of a complex ecosystem helps me with that question. Those wolves didn't just kill a few deer and then go on vacation, or retire. Their work kept going on. Just as God's work begun in baptism keeps going on in our hearts. Being baptized doesn't mean we're sin-proof. We still face temptation every day. We're still caught up in that web of sin. What being baptized does mean is that we're no longer trapped by sin. 
Jesus' death destroys the power that sin has over us. It's not the water we swim in anymore. What is structuring the ecosystem of your heart? What has grown out of control? What is missing that you need restored? What are some of the ways you've found to stabilize the rivers that flow inside you? Perhaps you've set aside time to read scripture or pray. Maybe you've joined others for contemplative prayer or found help by coming to youth group or other small groups by joining a Bible study. Or perhaps it's volunteering that helps you feel that solid ground under your feet. Isn't it interesting that the solution in Yellowstone was actually to add something The humans had tried to reduce the deer population on their own. They had tried taking something away. But it wasn't until they added the wolves that the real change could begin. The good news is that Jesus Christ gives us the ability to change, to turn again and again away from sin and toward what is good. And the even more good news for us as Christians is that we don't just do this for ourselves. We don't just want our own hearts to be renewed. Unlike Norman the dragonfly, we can go back down under the water and tell our friends about the hope we have in Christ. That's what Paul is doing in this letter to the Romans. He's telling them, hey, I've been above the surface. There's a whole different way we can live Remember what God has called us to do. Friends, we've been called to be ecosystem engineers, transforming this world to more closely resemble the kingdom of heaven. For over 20 years, our partnership with Henry Marsh Elementary has meant that we've made a difference in students' lives every week. And now we do that in middle school and high school as well. We've stood alongside risk, demanding justice for all members of our community. Teams from this church have delivered clean water to people in Nicaragua and Haiti. This spring, we reached out to our community to talk about suicide prevention and mental health awareness. And just imagine the number of people who've been touched by our deacons ministry. Maybe you're one of them. And now think about what more we could do, about gun violence, about protecting trans kids, about climate change and poverty and addiction and whatever it is that breaks your heart because that breaks God's heart as well. Our ability to do any of this is rooted in God's grace, which is there for us before we even begin to think about confessing While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The grace of God, according to Frederick Buechner, is something like this. Here is your life. You might never have been, but you are, because this party wouldn't be complete without you. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen Don't be afraid. 
I am with you, and I love you so much. Amen.